This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. Okay, I'm going to put you people on the spot, if I may. Now, you can sit there, of course. The first thing you do is when I start looking at you, you put your head down. And you're relatively safe. You can also look the other way and say, don't come to me because I have no answer. But now you people are at Reformed Theological Seminary and I mention that word Reformed. Read with me. Chapter 2, verse 1. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them bringing swift destruction on themselves. What? Didn't I say, not too long ago, once a child, always a child of God, and God says, I have engraved your name in the palm of my hand, fear not. And now we read, Jesus bought them, and they deny their sovereign Lord. And swift destruction comes upon them. Now, what do you do, you people of reformed persuasion? Keep your head down. You people who are studying at reformed theological seminary. See, one of the mistakes we make far too often is we read a text... And then begin to interpret it. And then you say, now we go on to something else. You haven't done your homework. If you go to verse 17, you have the answer to the question which I raised. I read, these men, these infiltrators who said, yes, I believe in Jesus. I'm a member of the church now and then deny the Lord. These men are springs without water, mists driven by a storm, black as darkness is reserved for them, for they mouth empty boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of sinful human nature, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. These people, these false teachers, promised them, that is, those who were just escaping, freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For a man is a slave to whatever he has mastered him. Verse 20, If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and are again entangled in it and overcome, 
they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. In short, they sin against the Holy Spirit. They have known the gospel, the word of God. They confess Jesus as Savior and then fall away. And they go right back in the sinful world and lead others astray as well. And therefore you read, and they are worse off. This is how it reads. They are entangled, overcome. They are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. And that's the answer. Yes, sir. I completely understand that. I guess you can... Um, what still bothers me a little bit is the word bought. It kind of goes back to atonement and the doctrine of limited atonement. Mm-hmm. It, it appears that there was something that was paid for there, and maybe that's just a translation. Maybe there's a better word that the NIV can use. That's what still I have a little problem with. Okay. Christ's death is sufficient for all in that his death on the cross purchased salvation for every man, woman, and child who's ever breathed on this earth. It's sufficient for all, but it's, it's applicable to those who come, and those who come, come through the power of the Holy Spirit. When you ask the question, my mind immediately went to the book of Acts and to Philip uh, preaching to the people in Samaria, and the man Simon, who believed when he saw the power of the Word of God and the, and the story of Christ, he believed and he was baptized. And then John and, and Peter come and they're preaching. And when they're preaching, it says, uh, when Simon saw that the Holy Spirit was given, when the apostles placed their hands upon the people's heads, he offered money to buy this power. Let me have this power too, he explained. And so when I lay my hands on the people, they're going to receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter replied, May your money perish with you for thinking of God that God's gift can be bought. And he went on to describe that. That immediately then caused my mind to think of Jesus' parable uh, of, the, of the field with the wheat and the tares. And it also brought my mind to, to think of Paul's warning to the elders uh, at Miletus when he was talking to the elders at Ephesus. And he was saying to them, Now I know that when I leave, savage wolves are going to come and you've got to be able to pick these savage wolves out. They're going to come as sheep, but they're they're coming to, to tear up the. And so, uh, and then I read the section. And then I went back and read the section you brought us to. And I realized it's being consistent all the way through. And the consistency is is that Christ and the apostles are telling us that within the church, are these individuals are going to come. They're going to know all about Christ. Uh, they're going to be able to even talk about experiences of where knowing about him has brought about a change. Uh, the difference is, is that, yeah, they've cleaned up their house, but the Spirit of God, that's where it comes back to what you're saying, that, well, not back, but right on what you're saying, that the Spirit of God, though, isn't in there. The Spirit of God hasn't applied that knowledge. In other words, is it, is it possible for a man to hear all this truth and to say, yes, this makes sense to me. And the answer is yes. Can he taste of it? And the answer is yes. We pointed that out with Hebrews yesterday. But 
to deny the Spirit of God? Well, that's what Simon does. He thinks he can buy the Spirit of God. That's what these men are doing. They're, they're denying the work of the Spirit, yet they've accepted some of the truth, and yet, and, and, uh, and yet with that truth, they're turning into evil purposes. Did Christ die for them? In the general sense, yes, he died. He died for all. His death is sufficient for all. But it's only applied to, hope, to those who, through the power of the Holy Spirit, as it says in, in John 16, they've, the Spirit has brought them to a repentance um, uh, over their sin, a, a, a fear of the wrath to come, and a desire for righteousness. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of a man. And that isn't there. Okay, thank you. I'll summarize it in a moment. Hunter? Well, number one, I would take issue with his interpretation of sufficiency for all and that Christ died for all. I think that's problematic and troubling, but to steer away, you can handle that if you want to, but to steer away with bought, what came to my mind specifically with the word bought is redeemed. And we know that God redeemed his people out of Egypt. And in fact, most of those men, as we discussed earlier, did not enter into his rest. And so there's the same kind of terminology about purchasing some people unto himself that still allows for those to fall away that are, in fact, not true Israel. The remark has been made, Christ, Christ's death is sufficient for all. And I'm going to put this on the board. You have a circle. All people are in it. And then it is efficient for the elect. And now you can go through the Old Testament and the New Testament and you will find people in this outer, the big circle. Esau, we talked about. Judas. Demas has forsaken me. And then you have the inner circle. Those who really know the Lord. They are redeemed. They are safe. You mentioned Simon. He's in this circle. He's not in the inner circle. That's how I would see it. Now, what about that word bought? The word is agorazo. And the word comes from the Greek word for marketplace, agora. If you go to Athens today, you go to the agora. Agorazo is the act of purchasing. Putting them in the big circle. And then waiting for their actions. Are they truly bought? Are they responding? And here's the human responsibility. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Yes, it's God who is working in you. But you have to do the work. And now what are these people doing that we are talking about in chapter 2, verse 1? They are false 
teachers infiltrating the church of God. These people at one time said, yes, we know the Lord. We want to be members. And then they went right back into the evil world and then they come and infiltrate in order to lead God's people astray. They are lost. And therefore, Peter ends by saying, they're bringing swift destruction on themselves. And he repeats that in verse 20, where he says, they're worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. I feel sorry for these people. I'm not the judge. God will judge. But I feel sorry for them. Okay? Yes? Is this what Jesus is referring to then in Matthew 7? Yeah. They say, Lord, Lord, in your name we did? Yes. But the end is, I do not know you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Okay. That was that. Um... When and where was the epistle written? Well, we can say probably the same place in Rome. And now when did Peter write? There's the early date and that is about 66-67. Then there is a late first century date the year 80 and last there is a second century date of the year 125 now let's look at them first the early date and by the way that's my interpretation Peter is referring to his imminent departure from this life in chapter 1 verses 13 and 14 So this is really Peter's last will and testament. He gives his parting admonitions. Now we have no knowledge of the exact date when Peter passed away, even though the church historian Eusebius puts Peter's death during the Neronian persecutions, the four years, 64 to 68. Now, if we date the composition of 1 Peter about, let's say, the spring of the year 64, then we may say 66-67 for the second epistle. Secondly, the late 1st century date of about 80. Scholars think that a disciple of Peter (coughs) wrote the epistle after Peter had died. And some of these are even evangelical scholars. The secretary, so to speak, quote-unquote, composed the letter in the name of Peter (coughs) perhaps 20 years after the apostle's death. These scholars opt for a late first century date because they maintain that the letter discloses discloses a Christology that reflects 
a later date. Moreover, <coughs> the phrase <coughs> Moreover, <coughs> the phrase participate in the divine nature, which you find in one verse four, appears to have its origin in Hellenistic Judaism of the last two decades of the first century. And last, they see a response to heresy within the church that points to a relatively late date. An evangelical scholar, British scholar, Richard Bockham, wrote a commentary on Jude in Second Peter, on page 158, says so. The use of the future tense instead of the present tense, that is, in the last days scoffers will come, future tense, 3 verse 3, seems to favor a date of A.D. 80. Scholars who interpret the clause, since our fathers died, in 3 verse 4, signify, say, it signifies Christian fathers, and therefore they favor a late first century date. Personally, I'm not impressed. It is Peter who wrote, <clears throat> and not a secretary. And then you have the second <coughs> century date of about 125 A.D. They declare that the writing of Second Peter is dependent on the epistle of Jude, which they claim was written probably in about the year 100. And this is nothing else but hypothesis. They have no basis for saying this. They dispute the apostolic authority of Second Peter. And there is a dearth of historical facts. And all they can come up with is a, a hypothesis, a suggestion and no more. <coughs> now, <coughs> all I have to do now is talk about the place in the canon of Second Peter. Second Peter was received in the early Christian church. We are able to detect some allusions and resemblances of second Peter's second epistle in the writings of Clement of Rome, 96 A.D., and the shepherd of Hermas, also before the end of the first century. The epistle of Barnabas, which dates from the end of the first century, has a phrase that echoes Second Peter 3, verse 8. With the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The author of Barnabas writes, Lo, the day of the Lord shall be a th like a thousand years. And also, Justin Martyr, one more name, <clears throat> about the year 150 refers to that very text with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day.
The Muratorian, can, Muratorian canon of about the year 175 does not have 1 Peter nor 2 Peter. Now we go to the 3rd century and we listen to what Origen writes. He quotes 2 Peter six times and calls the epistle Scripture. He says, quote, Peter has left one acknowledged epistle and it may be a second also, for it is doubted. Then we have the names of Clement Alexandria and others. Eusebius classified 2 Peter with the so-called controversial writings and refused to put the epistle in the canon. The Council of Laodicea, now coming to the second half of the 4th century, the Council of Laodicea in Asia Minor, the year 360. The Council of Hipporagius, 393, North Africa. The Council of Carthage, 397. These three councils that I have mentioned now place Second Peter among the canonical books. So now it's firm. And now we go to John Calvin. Now let's see what Uncle John has to say. In his commentary... On the Catholic epistles, he writes as follows. Now, I'm not saying that John Calvin was infallible, so keep that in mind. He was also a man with feet of clay. And what I admire about John Calvin is his intellect. If you read his institutes, if you read his commentaries, if you read his sermons... <coughs> amazing the knowledge, the insight of God's Word. John Calvin started his ministry in Geneva, 1536, before long he was expelled, went on to Strasbourg, then returned in 1541, died in 16. 64, at the age of 55. In that short period, he had written commentaries on the Old Testament and the New Testament, written the classic Institute of Christian Theology, which for a century or more in England was used as the standard textbook for theology. He wrote sermons, he conducted correspondence with a number of people throughout the Western world. Amazing how the man could do all that work. And yet John Calvin writes as follows. Here it is. And yet, says he, when I examine all things more narrowly, it seems to me more probable that this epistle was composed by another, according to what Peter communicated, than that it was written by himself. For Peter himself would have never spoken thus. And there you have John. Martin Luther accepted Second Peter as part of the canon, but he placed it in the unnumbered book. 
And that's where I must stop with Second Peter. Why is Jude in the canon? And I would say because of the beginning of the epistle and at the end of the epistle. I know at least one pastor who every worship service would end with the benediction taken from Jude. Verses 22-23, those verses. Yes, Jude has a place. Now the authorship. He refrains, him, uh, he, he refrains from calling himself a brother of Jesus. He uses the double name. Here it is. Jude... A servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. He's not putting himself on the pedestal and say, I am a brother of Jesus Christ, you know. No, he's a servant. And by way of identification, he is saying, and I'm a brother of James, that is the half-brother of Jesus, my full brother. And now note, what he does throughout the epistle. Read with me verse 1. Second part. To those who have been called, one, who are loved by God the Father, two, and kept by Jesus Christ. Jude is writing throughout his epistle, bringing out a triad of clauses. Let's see if I can find another one or two. <clears throat> Verse 8. In the same, very same way, these dreamers pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and slander celestial beings. Let's try one more. Verse 11. Woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. Three. One more. And here's that beautiful benediction. Read with me verse 24, 25. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, <clears throat> the glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord. And here comes the triad before all ages, now, and third, forevermore. Beautiful. That is the epistle of James, of Jude, excuse me, of Jude. Uh, what you have, and I would like to do the same thing as we did with Second Peter over against First Peter, uh, put in the left-hand margin of a page, put the word Jude, the, the right-hand margin, put down Second Peter. 
Okay, and the Jude put down four. And the second Peter put down two, verse one. In between, you write, Godless men who deny the sovereign Lord. And the Jude, verse six. Second Peter two, verse four. Angels held in darkness for judgment. And the Jude, seven. Second Peter two, six. Sodom and Gomorrah burned to ashes. Jude eight. Second Peter two ten. These men arrogantly slander celestial beings. These men arrogantly slander celestial beings. Jude nine. Second Peter 2.11. Here's the phrase. Michael did not bring a slanderous accusation. Jude 10. Second Peter 2.12. These blasphemers are like brute beasts. Jude 11, 2 Peter 2, 15. They have followed the way of Balaam. Jude 12, 2 Peter 2, 17. Clouds without rain, driven by a storm. Jude 13, <coughs> Jude 13, 2 Peter 2.17. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. Jude 16, 2 Peter 2.18 They lust, boast, and flatter. Jude 17, 2 Peter 3.2 The apostles of our Lord foretold Jude 18, 2 Peter 3, 3. In the last days, scoffers will come. And that's it. We don't have to go over the matter again whether first peter second peter is earlier than jude or jude is earlier than second peter that is quite well known now jude precedes second peter there are a couple of things i would like to bring to your attention and that is jude depicts the moral ethical 
and spiritual life of these intruders, these false prophets, teachers. He portrays them as immoral people who pollute their own bodies and do not recognize higher authority. In fact, they're slandering angelic beings. Another thing that I have to bring to your attention is Jude 9. In Jude 9 I read, But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. And that comes from an apocryphal work called the Assumption, Ascension, Assumption of Moses. Jude has placed this into his epistle. And then we go to verse 14 and on, and we read, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men, See, the Lord is coming, and thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in the ungodly way. And of all the harsh words, ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And then he continues and he says, These men are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. Now, what shall we say about the Apocrypha? Shall we accept these and say they are inspired? The answer is no. The Apocrypha are not inspired. They've been left out of the canon and it is unfortunate that in 1546, in the month of April, Roman cardinals came together in the Italian city of Trent and they said, we declare that the Apocrypha, they call them deuterocanonical, second class canonical books in the canon and anyone who does not accept these books is cursed. And the Roman Catholic Church has never lifted that curse. So you and I are cursed because we say we accept 39 books of the Old Testament and not the Apocrypha. In fact, these cardinals were in such a big hurry that when they finished and had placed the anathema, the curse upon all those who differ from them, they inadvertently left out two apocrypha. Read the apocrypha someday. It's good. It's for edification. The Belgic Confession lists the books of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. 
and then speaks in Article 6 about the Apocrypha and says they should be read for edification but not for doctrine. And what we Protestants have done, we have thrown out the baby with the bathwater and people don't know about the Apocrypha. And then besides the Apocrypha, you also add this to the Pigrapha. And the assumption of Moses, that's pseudepigrapha. And first Enoch is pseudepigrapha. But there's a whole history behind it. And Friday afternoon, I'm going to take time out to talk to you about the canon. So how the New Testament canon was put together. So about an hour and a half, I'll be lecturing on the canon. Okay. Now, what shall we say about this text in verse 9 as well as in verses 14 and 15? My simple illustration and interpretation of inspiration, did you get the, the inspiration, interpretation, illustration? Now, get the point? Is this that when Jude picked up his pen and started writing guided by the Holy Spirit these words became God's words inspired that does not say that the entire book called Assumption of Moses is inspired it does not say that first Enoch is inspired it only says that this selected verse in 9 selected verses in 14, 15, these are inspired because of Jude. Why do I say so? Well, <clears throat> turn with me to Acts chapter 17. Acts 17. There we read the Areopagus speech of Paul. Paul begins by saying, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Well, you may as well come with a friendly statement so that you win the people over to you and they listen to you. For I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship. I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now what you are worshiping as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. Okay, now he continues. And notice what Paul does. When Paul preaches to Jewish people, let's say, in Antioch of Pisidia, recorded for us in chapter 13 of the book of Acts, Paul begins with Abraham, father of believers, and then goes straight through the history of Israel. When Paul preaches speaks to Gentiles, he starts with creation. Always the case. You find that in chapter 14 of Acts, you find it here again in 17. So he talks about the God who made the world and everything in it, the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples made by hands. And then I continue, and I read verse 28. He says, for in Him we live and move and have 
our beating, our being. And he continues and he says, As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Now, who are these poets? Well, they are the Cretan poet Epimenides, 600 years before Christ. And the second, we are his offspring, is from Aratus, who lived from 315 to 240 before Christ. Pagan poets. And yet these words are now in Scripture. And then Paul picked up his pen, or Luke picked up his pen, and recorded these words spoken by Paul. They, at that moment, were inspired. But not the works of these poets pagan poets. So that would be my answer to any objections that may be leveled against Jude. Okay. Uh, date and place we have dealt with quite well. If Jude precedes Second Peter, then we have to say prior to the, word, the year 67. And the place, that's very hard to say. May very well be Rome, we do not know. What about, <clears throat> what about canonicity? Was this short epistle considered canonical because Jude was not an apostle? And in Alexandria, Egypt, they said... <clears throat> Unless a book is written by an apostle, it cannot be canonical. <clears throat> but that doesn't hold, because what do you do with Mark? What do you do with Luke? What do you do with James? So we have to say, <clears throat> when a book is written by an apostle or apostolic helper, it is placed in the canon. At the beginning of the third century, Clement of Alexandria quotes Jude's epistle a few times and mentions Jude by name. And likewise, Tertullian, North African bishop, 200, the age, uh, the A.D. 200, notes Enoch possesses a testimony in the Apostle Jude. And then also, his contemporary Origen repeatedly cites the epistle of James. Eusebius has a different approach. He says, quote, Of the disputed books which are nevertheless known to most are the epistle called James and that of Jude and second epistle of Peter and the so-called second and third epistles of John which may be the work of the evangelist or of some other with the same name. And then we have Martin Luther, 1522. He lists all 27 books by name. The first 23 he gives sequential numbers, but the last four are numberless. 
They are Hebrews, James, Jude, and Revelation. We'll come to Revelation this afternoon and we'll find out. Luther maintains that Jude's epistle is an abstract of Second Peter and therefore is unnecessary among the New Testament epistles. A Lutheran scholar put it this way, tongue-in-cheek obviously, and he said, Modern Luther believed that all books in the New Testament were inspired, some more than others. John Calvin accepted Jude because the early church placed it among the canonical books. And he writes, quote, Though there was a dispute among the ancients concerning this epistle, yet as the reading of it is useful, and as it contains nothing inconsistent with the purity of apostolic doctrine, and was received as authentic formally by some of the best, I willingly added to the others. It is a universal book written for the church universal. It is a book which has an abiding message for all of us. The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.